a fiction novelist, there's always that that what if question is where you get so many story ideas. And it's like, well, what if there was like a Ted Bundy level serial killer that was a woman and just never got caught because she was a woman and no one ever thought she would be doing it. Hi, I'm Abby, and welcome to Criminal Types, where we dig into the real world cases, research, and obsessions that keep your favorite crime writers up at night. Hi, Criminal Types. I'm your host, Abby, and welcome to this week's episode. I'm betting that I am far from the only reader who feels like they can pinpoint specific authors or books that have in some way proved to be really pivotal in their reading journey. The author we're speaking with today is one of those writers for me. In today's episode, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, whose new book, The Book of Cold Cases, blends a true crime-inspired mystery with elements of the supernatural. All right. So, Abby, have you always been into supernatural crime thrillers? You know, have you always wanted your ghosts committing crimes or is it or is that something you had to learn to want? I used to flat out refuse to read any crime books that had any element of the supernatural whatsoever, which is ironic because I've loved supernatural horror movies for kind of as long as I can remember. I've been watching supernatural horror since I was way too young to be doing so. But like I said, I would flat out refuse any crime book that had anything remotely supernatural to it. I simply would not touch it. And then I can kind of pinpoint down to the month when that changed for me. I think it was February of 2018. I was new to work in publishing, Crime by the Book was still relatively new as well. And I had gotten to know this publicist who worked for Berkeley, a division of Penguin Random House. And I'd come to really trust her taste in thrillers. And she told me, she was like, I have this book. It's called The Broken Girls by Simone St. James. And she's like, I really, I know you hate anything supernatural, but I think you should try this book. I think you're really going to love it. And I decided just to trust her. And I am so happy that I did. That book was my gateway into a whole world of ghostly supernatural suspense. I became completely obsessed with Simone St. James and her work. And even more than that, it really opened up kind of a whole world of suspense novels for me. You know, this season we've heard from CJ Tudor. We've heard from Isabel Cañas. We've heard from these amazing authors who do weave elements of the supernatural natural into the mysteries and thrillers that they're writing. And I honestly kind of feel like I owe Simone St. James so much. She opened up my reading world. I think I would have missed out on so many amazing books if it weren't for her and The Broken Girls. Very nice. So that is uh, a, a great example of Simone being a great author. And then whoever that publicist was also being a great publicist. Good job out of that publicist. She is a great publicist and I give her so much credit. You know, she she turned me on to Simone's work and she really did change. She really did change my reading life. And she knows that too. I've told her that. So now that you really love supernatural crime, what is an aspect that you want to have a trope or something that that you really want to see every time you read a supernatural crime book? Is there something that you're like, oh, I really hope the ghost does this? You know, I'm not sure if it's so much um, a specific trope that I love or that I look for, but my favorite thing in, you know, a supernatural suspense novel or a suspense novel with supernatural elements is when the supernatural is kind of woven into the story in a way that keeps you guessing. Is it really something supernatural going on or is it that maybe the character is a little bit paranoid? You know, there are so many authors who do such a great job of keeping readers on their toes and wondering, you know, is there really a ghost? Is it all in the character's head? I think that's something I really love. And it's a quality of Simone St. James' work that I think she really excels at. She excels in so many ways, but I think she does a beautiful job of balancing, you know, those supernatural elements with a, you know, quote unquote, 
down to earth or quote unquote realistic mystery component. And I feel like the balance that she strikes is what made her work so accessible to me as someone who was initially kind of maybe, dare I say, put off by the supernatural in my novels. Well, we're going to play another round right now of America's favorite game, Stump the Abbey, in which we have listeners who have asked for book recommendations and they're very specific in what they want. And let's see if you have such a recommendation. So this one is going to be supernatural themed. A listener wrote in and asked, Abby, I would like a small town spooky wreck, please. Abby, do you have anything? I absolutely do. And I'm so glad you asked this question because it's giving me the chance to recommend a book that I still think is a bit of an underrated hidden gem. And that is The Craftsman by Sharon Bolton. This is a mystery set in a small town that absolutely has a spooky element to it. The Craftsman follows a police officer whose career was made when her investigative work led to the conviction of a coffin maker who had committed a series of child murders. So if that's not creepy right off the bat, I don't know what is. Years later, this man is dead, but all of a sudden, murders begin taking place in that small town that are eerily similar to those original crimes. Is there a copycat killer on the loose, or could this police officer have convicted the wrong man all those years ago? This story blends a really great mystery with a police procedural component with a spooky, almost occult element to it that I absolutely loved. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil the amazing surprises that the author has in store, but I will just say, read this book in the lead up to Halloween. You will not be disappointed. Wow. You had me at Coffin Maker. Coffin Maker, Child Murders. It's creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's got, it's got all the elements that you, you want. I guess you want those. Yeah. You want those. You want those, I think. <laughs> all right. Well, Abby, once again, you could not be stumped. You came up with a great book recommendation. So uh, yeah, that's, that stumped the Abby. So Abby, who did we have on our show today? Today, I spoke with Simone St. James, and in this conversation, we delve into everything from female serial killers to the role of amateur sleuths in solving real-world crimes. And, of course, we also discuss the dark and creepy elements of Simone's writing, too. All right, here we go. Simone, thank you so much for joining me today. It is such a pleasure to have you on Criminal Types. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you doing, Abby? I'm doing well. Nice I'm to see you. Nice to see you, too. I think the last time we saw each other was maybe at a Barnes & Noble event right before the pandemic. Is that possible? That's when we saw each other in person. <laughs> yeah. And we we did an Instagram interview. We did for one of one of your subsequent books. Probably yeah. Sundown but Motel. In but in person, <laughs> yeah, it's been like a couple of years, literally. <laughs> well, it's nice to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me. And I think maybe to kick off our conversation, I would love to kind of go all the way back, start at the very beginning. And I'd love to ask you to think back and tell us what was your first introduction to the world of mystery and suspense? What do you kind of credit as first capturing your interest in this space? Well, I've always been a big reader, so it would definitely come from books I read, Um even going way back. But uh, probably the first thing that really hooked me in was when I did um, a babysitting job when I was about 15. And um, after the boy went to the little boy I was babysitting, went to bed, of course, I wandered the uh, family bookshelves, which weren't very extensive, but I did find this, like at the time I found this yellowed old paperback called Women Who Kill. And it was a true crime book about female murderers. It was like Lizzie Borden. And I don't even remember who else was in there. It was a pretty old, it was a pretty old book. This would have been the nineties. So I don't even remember who else was in it, but I remember 
I kind of uh, shoplifted it from my <laughs> from the family. I was baby. I, they never noticed. And because I started reading it and I took it home and I read the whole thing. And um, that was like one of the first things that sort of hooked me in where it was like, wow, these like these things really happen. Like these are real like things that happened and these are real people. And, you know, it was yeah, I grew up the age before the Internet. So this wasn't something I came across a lot. So um, it was uh, that was what hooked me in. And those types of stories like thrillers and true crime, both kind of both. I got hooked on with that one book. That is so funny. And my first instinct is like, oh, my gosh, who are these people who you were babysitting for? But then I think about it and I'm like, imagine if someone were at my home looking through my bookshelves, they'd be terrified, too. So that yeah. is so that is so funny. I love it. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up women serial killers or women who kill, because I feel like that ties directly into your newest book, The Book of Cold Cases. And I'm really interested in this whole idea of kind of the female serial killer, because I feel like we just don't we don't hear about women who kill that often. You know what I mean? Are there any particular kind of real life cases like that that you found yourself kind of drawn to? No, there just aren't very many. And one of the um, one of the things that drew me to the idea of the book is, you know, what if you had like when you read true crime and you read about these serial killers, like the classic serial killers, like what if you had a case like that, but the suspect was a woman and that sort of, you know, changes everything about the story and how it's written about in the media and how the police look at it and how it goes to court and how the jury sees it. And it just changes everything about that story. And it's like, I also kind of was playing with the idea of how would you like, how would you create a female character, a woman who is truly frightening? Like you are like afraid for your safety when you're in her presence. Like that is not something that ever comes to mind when you think about being in the presence of any type of woman. And in this case too, the, the woman uh, is in her over 60. So, you you know, people don't think oh, I'm going to go talk to some woman who's over 60 and like, I'm really afraid for my life. So I really enjoyed that um, flipping that over on its head and playing with those ideas and concepts and um, coming up with a woman who. the main character and the reader through the eyes of the main character has to decide whether or not like they're frightened, actually frightened of her. Um, And I just really enjoyed playing with those, those tropes and those concepts. I mean, I loved reading it too. And it's so interesting because I feel like it taps kind of maybe inadvertently, maybe this wasn't even planned at all, but it really taps into this conversation that I think is kind of ongoing about the portrayal of serial killers, you know, in media, in documentaries, in films, you know, there's been obviously like the big Dahmer um, Netflix, was it a series or a movie that came out? There was that Ted Bundy series with um, Zac Efron. And I I just was really interested because, you know, we don't often see portrayals of women in these roles. And I loved the way in your story, you're kind of looking at, like you're saying, how the media, they sort of glamorize her, they sexualize her. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And at first, my first instinct was to think, oh, this would only happen to a woman serial killer. And it's definitely a unique thing. But also, it really is relevant to how we talk about men who are committing these crimes, too, and maybe glamorizing them or creating this sort of mythos around them. Yeah, I was tapping into all those thoughts and all those ideas because I consume a lot of true crime and a lot of those thoughts cross my mind, you know, like, you know, how is, you know, what am I buying into and, you know, and all the all the questions about it. And one of the other things that when you when you consume a lot of true crime, I came I came across, especially when it comes to the serial killers. And it's like they say, well, there's never really been like a big like female serial killer, like Ted Bundy level female serial killer. But on the other hand, they don't they don't actually know. Right. You know what I mean? They have not. Right. The only serial killers they've studied are the ones that they've caught. So, you know, there's also that for a fiction novelist, there's always that that 
that what if question is where you get so many story ideas. And it's like, well, what if there was like a Ted Bundy level serial killer that was a woman and just never got caught because she was a woman and never, no one ever thought she would be doing it. So I don't have any evidence of that. It's just an imaginary thing, but it was definitely fun to go down that rabbit hole in fiction and um, just sort of play on the idea that we don't actually know every serial killer that's ever existed. And we have not caught every serial killer that's ever existed. So it, it was, it was fun to sort of, uh, use my imagination to go down that sort of path. I love that. And I I have to ask you, Um, so I listen to this true crime podcast, Morbid, as do a bazillion other people around the world. Have you heard of this serial killer, Dorothea Puente? Yes, I have. Oh my gosh. I was just re-listening to Morbid did an amazing two-part episode on Dorothea Puente and her story is wild. And I was so curious to know if that was at all someone you'd come across in your in your research. <laughs> Um, not in my research, but, um, I'm a big fan of my favorite murder and they did an episode on her a couple of years ago at this point, but yeah, I did. I do remember the, my favorite murder episode about it. So yeah, it's definitely a story I've come across. It's a shocking story. And just a little like background for anyone listening who might not have heard of Dorothea. Um, she was this woman who was born, I think in the late 1920s and she basically like scammed and lied her way through life but she was really known for running this boarding house in Sacramento where she was basically stealing from elderly and disabled boarders and anyone who tried to kind of confront her she killed them and I think she buried them in her yard or something like that and she was I think ultimately charged with nine murders and convicted of two or three I would highly recommend Morbid's episode on it is so good yeah, it's quite a fascinating story. Yeah. yeah, and a tragic one at that, a tragic one at that. Um, but, you know, it really does raise the question for me, and I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts on this as a writer. You know, why do you think that more, maybe you don't have an answer to this, but why do you think more other writers haven't explored this idea? Because to me, it feels like such fertile ground. Like, this is a major gap. We don't have that many stories exploring what would happen if a woman were in this position of being the real villain. Yeah, I mean, I just always write um, partly where it comes from is I write the book I want to read. And it was just like, I find this interesting. And as I consume a lot of true crime, it's something that like you just don't see. And, and you know, there just aren't a lot of female serial killers that we know of that were covered. And it was just something that I found really interesting. And I thought, man, I'd love to read a book about that. If someone wrote that book, I would totally read it. That's really where a lot of my ideas come from. So it was like, well, I guess I'll write it because I would totally read that book. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you did because I loved it so much. And I was like, holy cow, I need more books like this on my bookshelf immediately. But tell us a little bit about kind of the foil to your villains. You have this woman who we have to decide, you know, is she a serial killer? Did she actually commit these murders that she's accused of? And then you have a true crime blogger who is basically our guide through the story. Tell us about that character and why you wanted to create this, you know, protagonist who's coming from that background. Um, yeah, so yeah, her opposite is Shay, and uh, she's a she's a re doctor's receptionist by day. That's her day job, and by night she runs a true crime blog, which is not like she doesn't make much money off it, but it's just her obsession. And um, it all stems from for her something that happened to her in her childhood that she's never really fully dealt with, and a crime that happened to her. So. Like I have this big character, which is this woman who is potentially a serial killer um, who was tried and acquitted of being a serial killer. So she, no one really knows that she or didn't she. And so she's kind of a big, larger than life character. And I wanted her to come face to face with someone who is more of an, instead of like a, a cop or a detective or someone who is also larger than life, I wanted her to come across someone who is more of an everyday type person, but what Shay has going for her is that she is just absolutely obsessed with this 
with this topic and with this case. And she's just, she doesn't really have in the beginning of the book anyway, much else in her life. And she just sort of was like, this is what I've got. And this is the only thing I'm interested in. And so it seems like um, an imbalance of power at first, but when you get into those scenes between the two of them, um, it's more even than you think. And even Shay realizes that she has more power than she thought she ever did. And um, even Beth recognizes that in her. And so it's, um, it was a very, very fun uh, sort of subtext to de- delve into between these two women. And it's always a power play because Beth is, oh, you don't know her motives. She's not probably not quite right in the head. So, you know, she's always trying to, it's always a chess game and she's always, maybe she's manipulating and maybe she's a few steps ahead and maybe she's one up and maybe she's not. And, but, and Shay is like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to take her on and I'm going to try it. And so it's, there's a, there's definitely a great cat and mouse back and forth between those two. And that's usually a scene in any type of uh, movie or show is usually that's between two men. You have an accused killer and a cop yeah and there's an interview and they're face to face and the cops got to try and get the truth out of this accused killer. So that's usually a, a scene between two men. And so I intentionally swapped it so that you have a scene between two women and it's a very different it's still a power struggle and a power play, but it's different type than what you have between two men. And so um, I really delve into that sort of difference as well between those two characters. Absolutely. And I love kind of the dynamic that you set up because, you know, I know as someone who also can, like, consumes a lot of true crime, I'm always so interested in the world of the online sleuth, you know, the amateur sleuth and these people who devote themselves so doggedly to pursuing these real world cases, you know, just kind of out of their own interest, out of the goodness of their hearts, out of their own desire to see justice served. And I love how you set up, like you're saying, that cat and mouse dynamic between your two characters. And it did lead me to wonder... If you went down the rabbit hole at all, learning about the world of online sleuths, amateur sleuths, to kind of write your true crime blogger character, um, I mean, I didn't really go too far down. I mean, you can go on Reddit and yeah. discover any number of subreddits that are pretty fascinating to read. I don't do any investigating myself. Yeah, of course. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I did find that world kind of fascinating and. Um, just sort of what would, I wanted to get into that person's head, like what would really just keep them going and is it just a desire for justice, but there's also her own things in her own life that aren't resolved. And in a way she's kind of feeling like she's solving something for herself or she needs to come to some kind of answer for herself. And so she can't really stop until she, you know, until she gets answers. Um, so that's sort of, and that's also answers the question, you know, like why, like, why would this person just keep meeting with this, you know, scary killer type? It's like, well, if they're a bit obsessed and there's something that they're, they think they're going to, like, they're, they're going to get out of this for their own personal resolution of their own personal trauma, then yeah, that person might just keep going because they can't imagine like just stopping and leaving it alone. And so that dynamic, um, it was very interesting to explore. Absolutely. So Shay is, you know, obsessed with Beth's story. You are a huge consumer of true crime yourself. Are there any real world cases that you kind of keep obsessing over that you can't stop thinking about that you find endlessly fascinating? Um, yeah, there's a bunch. Um, the mo- the biggest unsolved one that's always fascinated me is the Zodiac case, which I, I based Beth's case very, very loosely on. But if you don't know, the Zodiac uh, was a murderer in the late 60s and early 70s in the San Francisco area. 
And he was a man who went around and killed some random people, um, some a couple of couples. Um, and he shot some people and he stabbed some people and he just like just randomly killed people and he sent letters to the newspapers that had ciphers in them. And um it was never solved. They never even arrested anybody. They never, you know, whoever he was is he's probably dead now. So it was um it's just a fascinating case because if you wrote that into a script, it would be like, wow, this is a great thriller. Like you've got this random murderer who's sending letters like wow what a great thriller but it's actually happened yeah yeah <laughs> so and they never solved it they never could figure out who he was and so that was a really and eventually he just stopped so they don't know why because they don't know did he die did he you know did he get arrested for something else did he go to a mental hospital i mean we don't have no idea so it was uh it's a fascinating case it's one um david fincher made a movie about it about 10 years ago that's an incredible movie it's just called zodiac there's been several books about it um it's great so it's a case that that i wish they'd solved or they could solve because i would love to know yeah, absolutely. No, I think something about sort of the random randomness of his crimes make them even more terrifying to me. It's it is really it does have that kind of um, you just can't stop thinking about it and wondering what actually happened with that that whole story. Yeah, for sure. So we can obviously see, you know, kind of the true crime influences on the book of cold cases. But I think the other major influence on, you know, this book, but also your body of work in general is, of course, the supernatural. And we have to talk about that a little bit. Um, I think the book of cold cases to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This felt like maybe a less supernatural book than you've written in the past. What do you think? Yeah, it is a little bit less um, because I had so much going on with the human characters, you know, like I had just so much between Beth and Shay, both of those characters are so incredibly layered and incredibly deep. And I didn't want to sort of um, give them sort of short shrift um, and sort of go too shallow with my characters just so I could add more supernatural stuff. I wanted those characters to be fully explored so that the readers is really in deep with those people. So uh, yeah, it is a little less, although it definitely has its, its moments. Um, and I always get with every book, I always get a range of reactions. Like some people are like, well, that was just terrifying. And then other readers are like, well, I didn't find it very scary, but it was pretty good. <laughs> like what scares people is very, very individual. Yeah. So I write kind of what spooks me. And then sometimes I, I always get a range of some, some people are like, I had to read it with the lights on. I couldn't read it at night. And other people were like, eh, I, didn't, I didn't find it that scary. <laughs> and that's just always the way it's going to be. It's so individual. So what is it? What, what scares you? Tell us more. Like what, what was it that you're maybe in this book or just in in your work in general, what scares you that you kind of draw on in your writing? Like what scares me? Yeah. If you're if you're writing, what scares you? I mean, what are what are the things? Can you identify like a couple of key things that you keep coming back to that really freak you out? Um, everything scares me. <laughs> <laughs> um, dark basements, dark garages, dark woods, dark streets, um, strange noises, uh, to wind. Uh, the windows, strange noises in a house, uh, uh, someone walking behind me in a dark, anything, everything terrifies me. So um, I find it very easy to write just about things that spook me because the sort of a way I, that I face my own fears is I just write about them and write through them and um, write about what, explore why they scare me and all that stuff. So it's pretty easy to scare me. I can't watch horror movies. I can read scary books. Um, but the visuals of a horror movie I can't handle. So yeah, I'm I'm scared of just about everything. <laughs> this is wild to me. I would picture Simone Simone St. James being like hardened and able to watch any scary movie ever because your books are spooky. No, I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified of horror scary movies. 
<laughs> that is so funny. Well, I mean, I have to confess, and I think you know this already, but I have to confess that before I read your book, The Broken Girls, I was like so anti anything supernatural in any of my books. I just couldn't do it. And your wonderful publicist, um, I had met her and she was like, you know, you're really going to like this book. Like, just try it. I promise you're going to like it. So I went out on a limb and I tried it and it completely changed my reading habits. The Broken Girls was kind of my gateway into the world of suspense with supernatural elements. And I'm so forever indebted to you because I feel like you opened up this whole other world of storytelling to me. And, you know, something that I've always found with your books is that you do just such an incredible job of striking this balance between the supernatural elements and kind of the, I'm going to say, quote unquote, earthly or, you know, realistic components of the story as well. How do you actually go about navigating that? Is is that something that you have to kind of actively negotiate during your writing process? Yeah, and what what always works best for my stories, um, you can't just have some people and then something supernatural going on, and the two things just sort of are happening sort of parallel. They have to crisscross. They have to interact. You have to have your human characters, your 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 real life characters, have to be like engaged with 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 the supernatural storyline somehow. It has to affect them. It has to. Um, there has to be something that reflects in their life and there has to be an emotional engagement between those two types, those two storylines, and they have to mesh and they can't just be two separate books that you've just kind of clumped together into one physical book. So, um, that's really what works best for me is when you've got like the, the, the person knew the ghost or is looking for this answers and the ghost is part of the answer or there's a bit of a crisscross especially a plot crisscross and an emotional crisscross between those two and if you do if I do that I find that it really just enriches the story it enriches both stories and that um, you can use the parent what's going on in the paranormal to sort of enrich your storyline with your characters and enrich what your themes and enrich what you're trying to say and, and really, but also give it a real punch. And um, it just um, really works um, if you make it work, but it is something that it has to, it has to be kind of planned out as I write it. It has to be thought through and I can't just say, okay, well they're here. And then also there's something spooky happening over here. And this is two different storylines and I'm just going to plop them together on one page. Um, it definitely is something that gets worked through as I plot the book. I guess that really tracks with my experience reading your books too. I feel like there is always this kind of emotional through line with whatever the supernatural component is. It really does relate, like you're saying, to either the character's inner lives or kind of their personal mission in the story or something like that. There's this emotional connection that makes it really resonant. And something that I've also been thinking a lot about just with your kind of looking at your body of work in general is that not only are you writing supernatural stories or stories with supernatural components, but you're writing about women and you're writing about women's relationship with the supernatural. And I'm really curious, you know, what in particular it is about that relationship that interests you, you know, not, not just a person with the supernatural, but in particular, a woman's experience with the supernatural. Um, well, I just write about women because um, I, that's the only they're they're the most interesting to me <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as a woman. They're the only type yeah. of people I really want to write in depth about. That said, I'm working on a concept right now that does have eight, one male character in it. But um <laughs> I think that when you, you when you use their supernatural to explore the inner life of your character, there just there still aren't enough books that truly explore the women's inner lives and women's just thought processes and how we go through our life and you know just 
to the same level that you have books about men. So it just is a way for me to write about women, but also really, it really make the experience deeper and make the story deeper and really get the reader deep into that woman's, um, her daily experience and her thoughts and, um, really get them rooting for her. Hopefully, um, is the best way to explain it. And so I just like, I just, I just couldn't write a book about men. I would just not be interested. <laughs> there's look, there's 10 million books out there about men. And if you want to read one, that's great. But that's just not something I would be very good at doing. Um, and I, no one would believe it. I would write the worst. I would write, if it was all men in my book, it would be like, what? These people are not real. So I just write what I know. <laughs> well, and I was talking with another author recently about how just this idea of, you know, fiction exploring the way women sometimes aren't believed, their experiences might be discounted or not given as much weight, how, you know, back in the day, women be accused of being hysterical, quote unquote, that kind of thing. And I was curious if that factored at all into, you know, just what you're exploring with the supernatural, because I feel like you've got, you know, these women, maybe they're experiencing something that they can't logically explain or that people around them might not believe. Is that something that has factored at all into your writing? Yeah. And that is, that is true. And, and, um, experiencing something and not being able to talk about it and not being able to just, you know, explain what happened to you because you, like, what's the point? No, one's going to believe it. But in a lot of my books, they talk to other women and other women believe it like, you know, and especially something like say the sundown motel that there's a group of women characters there. And, and of course, broken girls too. There's a group of women characters and they, they understand each other. And so, it's so it has become something where you know they the female characters sort of have this in common and they they accept each other's stories more than they would if they went outside their circle for sure right so this all begs the big question do you believe in ghosts yourself <laughs> um i definitely believe they're possible i've never experienced one personally um i i believe they're possible i've never seen evidence like video evidence or anything like that that really truly convinced me that it was totally real. Um, but I, I do believe it's possible. I definitely believe it's possible. Yes. Well, one of these days I will tell you my full ghost story and I'm going to win you over. I'm going to give you the proof that you've been looking I'm for. Will, I love hearing are real. ghost stories. People tell me their ghost stories all the time. Do they really? It. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so funny. Have there ever been any that have particularly like, I don't know, almost convinced you? <laughs> well, that's what I was saying. You know, like, yeah, I, I believe it's possible. I just personally haven't experienced it. Yeah. Um, so I can't, I'm not going to say all of it, you know, no way. I just, I was just, that's just not something I personally have come across, but I love hearing people's stories. And I think that, I think that what people experience is probably, probably very valid. Yeah. So the supernatural has been kind of a constant throughout your work, but you've had kind of a shift recently. You used, you used to write strictly pretty much historical suspense. Is that correct? Yeah. And so what accounts for the shift that you've made? I mean, your most recent books have had kind of maybe dual timelines, but they've all had kind of a contemporary component to them. What what accounts for that shift? Um, I just I wrote six books set in 1920s England. And, you know, I just explored everything I wanted to explore in that era. Um, it's a that's a lot of books. That is, it's a <laughs> lot of books. <laughs> it's so funny because readers are like, you need to write more of those. I'm like, yeah, I wrote six like, there's books. There's a lot. Like, if I'm writing six books, it's a lot. <laughs> 
but um so I really had had gone through like explored really in depth in that era and I just felt like I wanted to explore other eras and I wanted to move forward into the 20th century and I wanted to move overseas into America as my setting and so with the Broken Girls I moved forward into there was a 1950s Vermont timeline and um I just felt like I could make the shift in setting and in and in era, but it would still be a Simone St. James book. Like the setting wasn't what defined it as one of my books. Like the setting could be changed. And there was a whole bunch of other things, elements in those books that like we were just talking about the female characters, the paranormal, the ghosts, all that stuff. And it would still be a Simone St. James book, but I could just move, I could explore other ideas and other times. And um, I've really enjoyed doing that. Um, and I've, you know, I, with Sundown Motel and, I, you know, I've, I've moved into the 80s, I moved to even more modern and um, it's been really fun to explore. Um, it's also more fun to explore eras where there are still people alive who remember it. So you can have, when you're having a dual timeline and you have a present day timeline and a past timeline, you know, if you're talking about the 20s, well, you don't have someone in the present timeline who remembers the 20s. So um, you can, when, but when you're dealing with the 70s or the 80s, there's a tons of people who are remember the 70s and the 80s so first of all research is much simpler and second of all you can have your character who was alive in the 70s and your modern day character and you can have them sit down in a room and have a conversation which gives you a really good dynamic scene so um it's been a, it was it was really positive i find to experiment with that kind of thing and get those characters that were more modern so that i could really put them in a room together yeah, that's so interesting. And that leads me to my next question, which is like, what does, you know, what does research typically look like when you are crafting these settings? Because I know I've always felt like your your stories are just so immersive. You bring these worlds to life with such detail and it just feels so authentic to the reader. What does that research process look like to kind of get those details right? Well, that's why I say like the research when it's when when I'm doing a 70s or 80s timeline, the research is a ton of fun. I mean, it's the music, it's the movies, it's the TV shows, it's the magazines, it's the um, one of the big ones that's fun is um, clothing catalogs, like Sears oh, catalogs. Yeah. I mean, go through a, like a 1970s or 80s Sears catalog and a, what if it's fun or a 1970s, or 80s glamour magazine, um, Cosmo magazine, like that's fun stuff. I'll read all the ads. You can read everything. I mean, there's just the the research is just plentiful. So I get to do fun research when I when I research those eras. And that's what I do. I just go through the culture of the time because it's all right there and the movies of the time and, and maps and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you feel like there are any unique challenges that come with setting a story more in the contemporary time? I'm thinking in particular of things like the internet, cell phones, like are, are those challenges? Are they additive? Like, how do you feel about that? Oh, it's fun to write um, a pre-cell phone timeline when yeah. you're doing a thriller yeah. <laughs> i mean it's i do the dual timelines the last few books so there i do have a modern person who's got a cell phone and is on the internet but i kind of feel like um when you have those pre-internet pre-cell phone timelines like you're you never just would like you know would write about someone just sitting in front of a computer googling things right right it's not a very interesting story yeah <laughs> so it's kind of fun to have one storyline where the person has to like just get on the, get on the phone even or get up and go and go places to figure things out and um you can kind of balance that out because otherwise you know if you have your modern day character is always like going around like searching things out it's like your readers going well why don't they just google it like why right. are they traveling to some <laughs> other city to go see something when they could just go look on google earth so 
Um, it is definitely fun to just time travel back before cell phones and the internet when you're a fiction writer and you're, especially when you're a mystery thriller writer and just get your characters just up and up and walking around and driving around and, and talking to people and knocking on doors and calling people up. And uh, you just get a lot more, a lot more fun in your fiction that way. I love that. And I think, I mean, I'm I'm not a writer myself, and I always marvel at authors like you who are able to craft these cohesive stories that have all these different moving parts. You know, you've alluded to the different timelines that you have going on. We've talked about kind of the depth of your character development. You've got supernatural stuff. You've got kind of down-to-earth, earthly mysteries. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just how you kind of first conceptualize your stories? When you set out to start writing, do you know from the beginning exactly how you want it to end, or do you find that your plots are ever kind of revealing themselves to you as you're writing? Um, I always start my story with uh, what I call the question. It's always a story question. So, like, for the Book of Cold Cases, it's did, did Beth kill those people or not? Did she or didn't she? And when I first come up with the idea, I want as a I want a question that would suck me in as a reader. Like, would I read this book? So I have a I came up with the idea, and it's a woman who was put on trial for being a serial killer was acquitted, and and there was evidence that she did it, and there was evidence that she didn't do it, and it so nobody really knows, and it, you know, like that's the true crime sort of thing where it's like. I, I'm dying to know whether she did this or not. And so for me, it comes from a, it always comes from a story question and it has to be a story question that I find interesting enough that I want to, I would read it and I want to write a whole book about it. And I don't know the answer to the question when I first come up with the concept and decide like I'm married to this concept. I really want to write it. And I kind of people it with, I figure out the setting and I figure out who these characters are, what characters interest me and what would make this more interesting to me. And I sort of set it all up. And then sometimes I start writing it. Um, I'll write the first couple of chapters um, just to kind of get like immerse myself in that world. But um, at some point I kind of stop and work ahead and figure out kind of what the answer to the question is, because in order to write the book, I have to figure out what I'm writing toward and what clues I have and where I'm going to sprinkle them in. So there is a point where I sit down and go, okay, I, I, I love this question. I'm completely immersed in this question. What, what is the answer? I have to come up with it. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one else is going to do it for me. So um, then I do come up with the answer to the question. And then that's sort of like when I write like a synopsis and I send it off to my publisher and I say like, do you guys like it? This is something that, you know, you want to see. Um, they sort of on the publisher's end before they get me to write, spend a year writing a whole year, writing a book, they kind of want to know where this story is going and they can kind of, you know, speak up and say, Whoa, like you got giant plot holes here. This doesn't work so that you don't waste a year doing it. So I send off, you know, like, well, here's where I'm going and here's kind of what the answer is. And then they can kind of look it over and go, yeah, yeah, I think that really works. You should do it. So there is some, writing into the mist in the beginning but then there's a point where I have to stop and figure out at least I don't I don't plop the book scene by scene by scene by scene by scene every single thing I just kind of know what the answer to this question is and what I'm writing toward and then I then I just go for it um so it's a bit of a mix um a lot of writers talk about you know plotting or pantsing but I just I always do a mix that's amazing I mean have you had does that mean you've had book concepts where you've kind of like crafted them and then you've had to throw them away you've had to leave them behind I have. It's pretty rare. Um, there's been a couple and there's been a couple that I, uh, a number of them that I throw away before I even present them to my publisher where I'm like, I kind of get far, a bit 
through it and I get to the point where I'm like, no, like there's just something about it that doesn't work. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a concept that would really only work for a shorter story and not for a full novel. It doesn't have enough layers for a full novel. And so I kind of put that, put it to the side before my publisher even sees it. Um, but usually by the time my publisher sees the concept, I'm pretty far along. And if they, if there's something that doesn't work about it, we can at least rework it instead of just throwing it in the trash and starting over. Um, the throwing in the trash part usually happens before they see it. I usually do that myself. <laughs> You're like, nope, that one's not seeing the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Well, that is interesting, though, because you you just had a fantastic, um, it was an Audible original, right? A short called Ghost 19 that was so great that it'll be out as a novella, I think, in January so by the time this airs. Um, but was that kind of how that story came to be, that you kind of felt like it could have been a full-length novel, but it worked better as a novella? Yeah, that's, that was one of the ones where it was like, I just felt like um, the concept really came to me and the character, the, that main character, Jeanette, the heroine really came to me and the setup really came to me. And and I actually started that story several years ago and I really just started it as something that I just found fun. I didn't really, wasn't for publication. It was just something that just just came to me and her voice really came to me and it was really fun and I was just writing it and I got I got most I got more than halfway through and then I had a bunch of deadlines and stuff and I had to put it down and stop writing it because it wasn't you know for for a contract so I put it down and then the pandemic happened and in 2020 and I had turned in the book of cold cases and I and I was waiting for my editor to go through it so I had a month or two where I just wasn't working on anything else yet and it was March 20 or spring 2020 and I had nowhere to go and no one was going anywhere. And I just went in my laptop. I was like, God, this is, I found the story. And I was like, is this as good as I remember? I'm not sure. Maybe it's trash. And I read through it. And I was like, no, 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 this is really good. And I, I had in my head how it ended. I knew exactly how it ended. I just hadn't had time to write it down. Yeah. So I sat down in spring 2020 and just wrote the whole rest, revised the whole thing and wrote the whole rest of it. And then I was like, well, and then I just kind of put it away again. I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? And I just... I don't know. I just put it away. And after a few months, I like just emailed my agent and I was like, you know, I wrote this, like it's just sitting on my hard drive. And she's like, well, let's send it and see, you know, let's send it and see if something happens. And so we ended up with, with it. Yeah. It's an audible. It came out in audio first. It's already out in audio and it comes out in ebook January 3rd. Um, and it's about, it's about one third, the length of one of my regular novels. It's about a third, the length. And yeah, it was just, that's just how, like, if you've read it, you know, like that's, that's how long that story is. That story, if that story was three times as long, it would be very dull and there would be a bunch of repetitive scenes in it. Well, I so like, say just, that. that's just how long it took to get that story from beginning to end. And, um, you know, ghost stories have a long history of working in very, very short formats, short stories and novellas. Like you can pack a real punch with a ghost story with a short story in a shorter format. So I also just wanted to play with that and see if I enjoyed writing it. And I really, really did. Oh, well, I'm so, I mean, I loved that story so much. And it's um, for the uninitiated, it is kind of a rear window, but if it were a ghost story, I think is the best way to describe Ghost 19. It is so chilling and claustrophobic. It's fantastic. And it's very, very ghosty. We were just talking it about is it. on the, the scale of being slightly less ghosty. <laughs> ghost 19. That's why I put, I actually intentionally put the word ghost in the title so that anyone who's picking it up or looking at it knows this is absolutely like 110% a ghost story, like ghosts beginning to end. If you don't like ghosts, move on. <laughs> but this is a ghost story for sure. And it's a great ghost story at that. <laughs> well, we are 
believe it or not, almost out of time here. And it may be too early for you to say anything about this. So no worries at all. But I would love to ask you, I have to at least ask, is there anything you can tell us about what you're working on next? Yeah. So I have another book written. I don't have a release date yet. It's still getting worked on. And um, the next one is actually, it's actually a single timeline. Um, I Just because the way the story works, it's not a dual timeline type setup. And um, it uh, takes place in the 90s. And it's about um, a couple that just got married and they're on their honeymoon and they're driving and they take a wrong turn and they go down a wrong highway and they pick up the wrong hitchhiker and they end up in a whole load of trouble. And oh it's God. a ghost story again. And it's about these these two people who they, uh, you know, they're married and they're in love, but they just got married the day before. So there's a lot they don't know about each other. And they just get dropped into this giant vat of supernatural trouble. And um, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be really, really good. A giant vat of supernatural trouble. I love it. I cannot <laughs> wait to read this. Well, to close us out here, are you game to do a quick little lightning round of a few kind of rapid fire questions? Okay, sure. All right, let's do it. What is one thriller you think should be on everyone's to read pile? One of my favorite thrillers I read in the last few years was by, well, Karen Slaughter is a very like big best-selling author, but a number of years ago, she wrote a book called Cop Town and almost like that was one of her lower selling books. It was a standalone book. It wasn't part of her big series. And it was about two female cops in Atlanta in the mid seventies. And it was like, you could tell it was a real labor of love for her. And it was about these two, these, what it was like really would be like to be a female cop in that era, in that city yeah. at that time. And they get drawn into this murder investigation and um, the whole culture of it and the whole culture of being on the police force as a woman and like details about the uniform they wore and, you know, and every, with the, what they had on their belt and like just all the stuff, just that book always stuck with me as just like, on you, like just so different, like just so fresh. Like you just don't read that all the time. Um, that's one that I tend to recommend a lot because um, it's one of her lesser known books and it's really, really good. Amazing. I have not read it. Added to my to read pile. Now, what is the strangest thing you've ever Googled in the name of book research? Yeah, there are a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing I probably Googled was um, I had to Google uh, Ted Bundy's DNA for the book of cold cases, there's a line where Shay says that Ted Bundy was executed in 1989, but they didn't type his DNA until like a decade later. So, and that's just one of the, because she's a true crime buff. That's just one of the crazy facts that she just has sitting in her head. And I had read that somewhere and like, I couldn't remember whether I was right or not. So I had to Google yeah. Ted Bundy's DNA. So yeah, that, that factoid in that book is actually true. It's like, I love it. Gosh, I really hope there really are like, you know, NSA agents who monitor all of our Google searches or whatever, just so they can look at you Googling Ted Bundy's DNA. That's so funny. <laughs> at least I didn't like Google, like how to murder somebody. That's true. But I you did, know what? I did Google. Do we have Ted Bundy's DNA? Yes, they have Ted Bundy's <laughs> DNA typed in a, in a, in a database somewhere. The more, you know, okay. My last question, which of your books would you recommend readers start with? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, the, first of all, every one of my books is a complete standalone. I don't have any series. So there's no set entry point for any of them. Um, you don't have to start at book one or this or that. Um, if you really like the 1920s ghost stories idea, the the ghost set ghost stories set in between World War One and World War II, definitely start with my first book, which is The Haunting of Maddie Claire. Um, a lot of my readers started with that book. And that's a super ghosty book, by the way, super ghosty. 
And um, other than that, if you like the more modern setting, um, I would probably say maybe start with the Sundown Motel because um, I just found a lot of readers found that one easier to sort of slide into the supernatural part of it um, because there's just so much other stuff going on. Uh, The Sundown Motel is probably, yeah, if you like the more contemporary setting, probably start with sundown motel but you can read the you can read the jacket copy and like whatever story grabs you you can just jump into because they're not a series you can and should read them all they're so fantastic simone thank you so much for your time this was such a pleasure thank you so much abby It was so much fun to get to speak with Simone. She has obviously had a huge influence on my own reading journey, and I was thrilled to get to chat with her today. Thank you very much, Simone, for your time. Also, keep an eye out because Simone's publisher is currently in the process of reissuing some of her earlier books. There is a gorgeous new edition of her book, Silence for the Dead, coming out in July, so mark your calendars for that one. I know it's on my personal to-read list this summer. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or rating on your preferred podcast platform. Feel free to send me any questions, book recommendation requests, or comments at criminaltypes at prh.com. This show is edited by Clayton Gumbert. Music in this episode from the songs Empty Orchestra, No Reason, and Xenarthrin, written and performed by Shearwater, courtesy of Sub Pop. Criminal Types is a production of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group and Penguin Random House Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.